This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is a special holiday episode. This is the weekend where all three of the major religions celebrate such an, an important holiday for each. You've got the Christianity Easter, where Christians all over the globe are at church, and they're uh, eating glazed ham, and they're rolling Easter eggs. You've got Jews that uh, had satyrs and their discussions of the angel of death passing over houses and blood on the door and locusts and boils and frogs and all that. And then, of course, you've got Ramadan for the Muslims and the Palestinians are celebrating by throwing rocks at buses, screaming, yelling, trying to kill Jews and promising to open the gates of hell and having the uh, streets run with the blood of martyrs. So those are the three main things that are uh, happening this weekend. But So this will be somewhat of an abridged episode. We're going to talk about a couple, just a couple of items this week, nothing huge. One thing that was in the news this week, by the way, thank you for making time for the show. I appreciate it. And one of the things we're going to talk about that was in the news was the Tom Brady uh, final career touchdown pass football. I mentioned it a few weeks ago on uh, the podcast. That was the football, the final football of Tom Brady's storied career. It sold last month at Leland's auction for $518,000. And Tom Brady, as you know, is the greatest quarterback that's ever lived in the NFL. And getting uh, the football, his last touchdown pass was a big deal. And uh, the ball, as I said, sold for $518,000, only to have it rendered uh, the value of a fraction of that the very next day after the auction when Brady unretired. I brought that up, that story. Well, as in the news this week, surprise, surprise, I'm representing the winning bidder of that football. I didn't mention it in the last show because things were sort of on the hush, on the down low. Well, now you know. And as I said, the the auction winner, after he wins the $518,000 football, the next morning learns that Brady is coming back and therefore his football will no longer be the last, the final touchdown of Tom Brady's career. And as you could imagine, he was upset. Um, didn't want to spend $518,000 after the fact and get back a ball that's worth maybe $20,000. And this was a somewhat of a tricky legal issue because the description of the ball in the auction listing was accurate at the time. It was, in fact, Tom Brady's final touchdown pass football before he retired. It was. As I said, though, however, the next day after the auction, Brady unretires, making the ball no longer his final touchdown pass, assuming that he throws one next season, and short of him dying or getting badly injured before the season starts is, is a guarantee. So uh, the legal issue, and this has been discussed ad nauseum all over uh, sports chat boards on uh, sports programs, sports news radio and TV, does the winning bidder have to pay? As I had said, when he bought the ball, the auction listing was accurate. However, when he would have received the ball, the ball would not be accurately described. And I was hired soon after the auction ended by the winning bidder. And as I said, I have said, or anybody who knows me knows that I have a tremendous amount of knowledge of sports collectibles. Also in the sports collectibles legal world, it's one thing to be a collector. It's another thing to be a lawyer who understands the legal issues. I currently represent SGC, which is one of the largest third-party card grading companies after PSA. I've represented sports auction houses. I've successfully sued crooked, crooked sports auction houses. I've represented people who have committed crimes in the hobby and kept them out of prison. I've uh, helped the government convict criminals in the sports uh, collecting hobby uh, fraud cases while representing whistleblowers and cooperating witnesses in these criminal cases. And this is you know, not even you know, a tiny percentage of my practice. It's even smaller. I almost uh, exclusively handle just federal and state criminal cases and appeals. But in a lot of ways, these sports collectible cases, it's, it's so in my blood, I love them. And uh, you're asking why? Why would somebody who represents uh, the alleged bosses of organized crime families, CEOs of banks, all kinds of uh, figures in the music world, judges, lawyers, doctors, you name it, 
how did I get into this, the sports collecting legal field? Well, it starts as, as a collector myself. I was very into it as a kid and, and people that are listening out there, it depends on your age, I suppose. But back in the seventies, I started collecting around 1970, I suppose. That's my earliest memory of collecting. And, uh, the earliest cards that I pulled out of packs myself are from 1970. So I was not quite five years old at the time. And it was a different world. There was no video games for kids, if you can believe. And there was only a handful of TV stations. You know, you had CBS, NBC, ABC, you had, uh, in New York, you had WPIX channel 11, you had uh, WOR, which was channel nine. And you had PBS, obviously, with Sesame Street and the Electric Company and Zoom. Mr. Rogers, I don't mention because I, I wasn't watching that stuff. But that was all you really had. You didn't have all that much entertainment, I suppose. I wasn't listening to music yet at that time. I was five. I mean, if I was listening to music, it was like on top of spaghetti and, you know, songs like that. But I wasn't really, you know, focused on anything like that. I wasn't reading. So, uh, you know, anything significant as I got older, but I was collecting baseball cards. I was a huge baseball fan as a kid. Baseball cards, it was every kid had. It's hard to believe today because little kids don't collect. They collect Pokemon and other things like that. Every birthday present, I wanted baseball cards. Everyone. It's all I could think of was baseball cards. And, you know, back then you'd get some shitty presents from relatives. You'd, you'd get a box and you'd open it up and there'd be like 10 pairs of socks inside. Why? Because like your aunt wouldn't ask you what you wanted. Uh, she'd ask your mother and your mother would be like, well, he needs socks. I'd open up this box. Fuck, socks? What the fuck am I going to do with these things? But always there were baseball card packs, wax packs underneath the, the, the socks. So I would just take the, the socks and you know, throw them on the ground and start ripping the wax packs open. And they don't even have wax packs today. That's not how you buy cards. Inside the wax pack, every pack had a flat, powdery, sugared, pink stick of bubble gum that was pressed onto the card, you know, wrapped in there tight. And you could actually see the outline of it. Um, on the outside of the pack sometimes, but you'd rip those packs open. And it was like, I can't even begin to explain the joy that I had ripping open those packs. And back then in the early mid seventies, when I was ripping open the wax packs, the big player was Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron was about to, uh, he was the best player in baseball and he was about to pass Babe Ruth, one of the most hallowed um, uh, figures in all of sports. And he had the most hallowed record, which is the most home run 714. So as you watched the relentless drive to 715 by Hank Aaron, as a young kid, man, you opened up those packs. And if you saw a Hank Aaron card, you like lost your mind. I mean, it was the most incredible feeling. There was no concern about value. There was no concern about how much can I, can I sell these for kids today? That's all they care about. If you look on the internet, they're all, you know, ripping open wax packs so they can get a Michael Jordan rookie card and you know, old stuff they're, they're ripping open. Or if it's the new stuff, it's cards that are designed, uh, they have contrived rarity. They'll have a, a one-of-one, a special Mike Trout card with a, a special border and uh, an autograph. It's contrived rarity nowadays because they're trying to get people to spend a zillion dollars on packs with the hope that they'll get that one-of-one that they're told is somewhere in one of the packs. It wasn't like that when I was a kid. Um, there were no contrived rarities. You just ripped open packs and you tried to put together a set if that's what you were into. And back then in the seventies, the sets were usually about 726 cards. Why I remember that number, I don't know, but I remember it was one through 726 and you'd get duplicates and duplicates and duplicates and You'd save them, you'd trade them to try to get cards you didn't have, you know, with your friends, because everybody collected baseball cards, and you didn't care about the condition you kept them, and you wanted to keep them in decent condition, because, you you know, if they're ripped up or destroyed, they're no use to you. Um, some of the cards you flipped against walls, some kids put them in the spokes of their bicycle wheels, so they'd make that, you know, flap, 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 flap noise when they uh, uh, rode. But I didn't do that. I would try to keep them in decent condition, and I never got rid of the cards. I kept every one of them. And as I got older and I started looking back and found my childhood collection, I was thinking, wow, I really kept care of my cards. I put them in plastic sheets, you know, back then, which was rare for a kid who was, you know, 10, 11 years old. 
And then I went back to look at them, and of course, the corners were not pristine. I had to play with them a little bit before I could put them in the plastic sheets. I didn't care again about the value and the difference nowadays with a card that's got a, you know, a Hank Aaron from 1975 that's graded a 10 could be worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. If it's a seven, which is still a really nice card, you know, it's worth maybe a couple hundred. So back then, nobody cared. There was not this obsession about money. It was just an obsession about baseball. And um, I was a numbers-oriented kid as well. I've always been very into numbers, math, and the combination of my love of baseball and the numbers on the back of the cards, the stats of all the players, you know, that's what made it like the greatest combination ever, uh, these baseball cards. And as an adult, uh, I'm a history buff, and, and baseball is America. I mean, you've heard that before. I mean, so many important things in our history are reflected in and, and occurred during baseball, wars, uh, civil rights. And we talk about Jackie Robinson this weekend. Friday was the 75th anniversary of his the breaking into the major leagues, the first black man to ever play in the major leagues after all the uh, discrimination. You know, so baseball really had everything for me. And as I uh, said, I collected into my adulthood. There was a brief respite during college and law school, I believe, where I didn't collect. But I kept all my cards. I never threw them out. They were always there. And as I got older through law school, um, I started collecting more seriously when I got out and became a lawyer. And I actually was an adult. You know, when you're a kid, you don't have any of your own money. You know, if you're going to get money, it was like an allowance, you know, a buck a week maybe. You know, as you got older, maybe $5 a week, so you could maybe buy some wax packs. But you weren't, like, buying anything serious. I wasn't collecting early cards, tobacco cards from, you know, the early 20th century or even 19th century cards. I was just collecting the wax of the day. And I remember back then as a kid thinking, I wish I could just keep some of these wax packs and not open them. It would be cool to look back 25 years later, 30 years later, and have these sealed wax packs. But I had no self-control. I just wanted to rip open the pack so bad. So, I, you know, if I kept the pack aside, you know, to, to save it, it, it might have lasted an hour. It didn't even last a day. Now, as an adult, I actually collect those packs that are sealed now, you know, from back then. Because to me, you know, as an adult, you, you sort of look at your youth, the innocent part of your youth, and you look back on it so fondly and Oftentimes you look back on it more fondly than it really was, but in a, in a more complicated life as an adult, you sort of find some solace in uh, the baseball cards, or at least I do. So, you know, I've spent $10,000 on sealed packs, a number of them over the years, because I look at them and it, and it brings me joy, as idiotic as it sounds now coming out of my mouth. Anyway, as I it was a young lawyer and I started uh, collecting, I started gravitating towards uh, vintage baseball cards, which was, you know, earlier than from where I grew up. I mean, I grew up, as I said, collecting in the 70s. And I'm talking about pre-war cards, pre-World War II, 1942 and earlier. Tobacco cards, you know, where the famous uh, Honus Wagner, the skinny card with Honus Wagner with the yellow background. That's one of the, probably the most famous baseball card in the history of the world. That's um, pre-war vintage tobacco cards that were in, in and cigarette packs. That's what I'm talking about, things like that. So I would join uh, these forums where we would talk and trade information, and it was a massive amount of information to learn. It wasn't like the cards of my youth. There were so many different issues. There were candy cards. There were bread cards that were in loaves of bread. As I said, there were tobacco cards. Uh, there were postcards. You name it. There are different cards were put in everything back then. And the law is, you know, usually when you're dealing with this stuff, it's either contract, somebody makes a deal and breaks it, which is not the kind of stuff necessarily that I'm usually involved in, but there's fraud. Anytime there's an opportunity to make money, there's going to be fraud. There's going to be crooked people around. And now as I got older and started collecting, the baseball cards became a serious business. It wasn't just a bunch of freaks at a, at a flea market on the weekend. Now you've got auction houses or selling you know, tens of millions of dollars of sports cards. This is, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But naturally, because I've got a big mouth, I was very outspoken on these boards. And I also um, recognized fraud a lot easier than the average person, mainly because my job is dealing with people that are charged with fraud oftentimes. And there's tons of fraud that exists in the baseball card 
uh, hobby world, including trimming cards. I mean, think about a card that's been handled a bit and the corners are a little dull. They're a little rounded. But if you get a microscopic trimmer um, and you can slice off all four corners, suddenly you've got a card that has four sharp corners. Why is that important? Because cards are sold as commodities now, and they're sent to third-party graders. I mentioned SGC and PSA. You send them in, and one of the determinations of the grade of the card on a scale of you know, roughly 1 to 10 is the sharpness of the corners. If a card has perfectly sharp corners, you know, it's 8, 9, or 10. If it's got dull corners, it could be a you know, 1, 2, or 3. The difference in values are sometimes exponential each level of grade. As I said, Ty Cobb, 1914 Cracker Jack card in a grade uh, of five could be worth 60 or 70,000. Uh, if it's an eight, you know, it could be worth uh, 600 or 700,000, just a few grades higher. You know, as, as I uh, said, because I knew so much about fraud, I could discuss these topics in public. While many experienced lawyers know how to litigate, they don't usually know how to litigate and also understand every deal of not only the sports collecting world, but also the major players that are in it, the people. And as I said, you've got trimmed cards as one of the frauds. You've got auction houses that are engaging in shill bidding. That means that you're bidding on a card and you think you're bidding against somebody else. And meanwhile, there's a guy at the auction house who's looking at all the bids. And every time you put a bid in, he's putting up another one and you think you're bidding against some other bidder, and it's really just the auction house running you up is what it's called. And the next thing you know, you're paying a little more than you want, and you're thinking, okay, I've got the card, I don't care. Meanwhile, the guy at the auction house is, has run it up artificially, the, the, the price, and you've paid more than the card is necessarily worth. I think also what got me into this field, and so I started doing a lot of this, and I've had some of the biggest cases there are in the sports collecting field, is because I do high-profile criminal work. It's not just I'm doing some. I do it very successfully. And the hobby uh, does not necessarily fill with a lot of criminal lawyers. So as a high-profile, successful criminal lawyer, if anybody has an issue, they're oftentimes going to go to the, the best criminal lawyer in the field. I don't even know if there's a second one. It's, it's really probably just me at this point, you know, one that's a top criminal lawyer. And I really love the cards and I love the issues. And as I said, it's a tiny piece of my practice, but my love of baseball cards is so strong that I agreed to represent people, started representing them on occasion on hobby-related issues. And usually they were criminal situations, sometimes civil as well. In fact, where I do this podcast is from a room that's my baseball card room. It's also a gun room, but I don't want to upset anybody. But there are baseball cards surrounding me as I'm doing this today. I wish you could see it. It's pretty bizarre looking. So being a top criminal lawyer outside of the hobby, um, you know, I made it clear to people that I understood what I was doing. And as I said, it was really hard to doubt me um, because this is, you know, a combination of two things that I know really well, criminal laws and baseball cards. And the people in the hobby are, are legitimate degenerate freaks. I want to make that clear. I mean, these are weird people. You just need to go to a baseball card show and see if I'm making this up, what I'm saying. There is some Disney aspect to baseball card uh, addicts. Uh, there's 99% of them are overweight men. You have some women at these shows, uh, but they're usually either dragged by the men or they're forced to work there as some, some kind of indentured slave by uh, the men who are selling cards as dealers. As I said, the men are mostly overweight and to accentuate their weight because it's not enough to be fat in a baseball card collector, but you really need to accentuate it by wearing polyester sports teams, jerseys, but it's got to be at least one or two sizes too small because you want to have a really hug your figure and have your belly show. And of course it's a must. You need to have a, a mustard stain on the front of uh, your jersey because otherwise you're not really official at these baseball card shows. Now, these are not the sophisticated investors that you hear about nowadays in the collectible world. These are just the fat weirdos who spend their weekends combing through $1 baseball card boxes at age 55, you know, need it, got it, need it, got it. You know, the kind of stuff you did when you were a kid, um, but now you're doing it like in your late 50s. And, and what's interesting is that their average life expectancy is shortened 
it's not the typical average because these are incredibly fat, unhealthy people. They don't exercise unless you count, you know, exercising their fingers, uh, looking through baseball cards and other endeavors. Um, there's massive overeating. And the idea that they're spending their last few years at baseball card shows on weekends looking for that elusive 1973 uh, Dick Pole baseball card should give you an idea of what we're dealing with in this hobby. These are weird people. And at these shows, no one is having sex at a baseball card show. No one. It's like, uh, it's almost a law that when you get into the hotel and you drop your stuff upstairs, you have to sign something that says, I will not have sex. And, you know, that does not include, obviously, self-love, because I'm sure that's happening constantly at the baseball card show, but not any uh, regular sex, because it's all about baseball cards and eating. Anyway, the industry is really the Wild West. It's, it's, it's really unregulated. It's not like, uh, you know, the bond or the stock market where you've got the SEC. It's unregulated. Auction houses are often havens for criminals. Own the auction houses because, you know, they've been convicted of, of fraud or other things in their prior lives, and they gravitate to an industry which is not on the radar of the government. And that's why you've got so many auction houses that are run by people with criminal records. They treat this like their own personal sandbox, uh, their auction house. Because when you're bidding, you don't know what's going on on the other side. There's almost no one hob honest in this hobby. Uh, the fraud is in the DNA of collectors and the sellers. You're just used to it. It used to be before third-party grading when you'd actually have an objective grade put on a card, which really you would have thought would have stopped a lot of the fraud. Back then, you'd have cards that you'd buy and they'd be advertised as near mint. That's one of the grades. That's like the second highest grade. Mint is the highest, then near mint. Um, then you'd have like excellent plus, then excellent. And then it would go down. The really beat to shit cards that look like they came out of a dog's intestines are still called good or very good, which of course is a misnomer because they're not good or very good. They're really ugly and they're torn to shit. But everybody who engages in this hobby I mean, it's like a modern-day flea market where just lying and puffery is the norm. You've got to be smart and careful to avoid it, but it's really impossible. You're going to get ripped off. Even if you're the smartest collector there is, you are going to get ripped off whether you know it or not. It's, it's impossible not to get ripped off because you're buying from auction houses blindly. You're buying stuff from people. You don't know if the cards have been trimmed and gotten through the third-party graders who missed the trimming because if it's... If it's a trimmed or altered card, they're not supposed to grade them with a numeric number. They're supposed to just call them authentic, but they're trimmed. But the cards get past the graders because, you know, they're not perfect. And oftentimes at some of these grading companies, you've got actual chimpanzees that they train. If you can believe this, it's a true story. They've actually taken monkeys out of the jungle and they've been able to teach them. You know, if you remember, if you grew up in New Jersey in the early 70s, sometimes you'd have what was called an assembly at your school. And one of the most famous attractions at an assembly at your school was Mr. Jiggs. He was an ape. I don't know if he was an ape or he was a monkey or an orangutan. He was from the ape family, but he drove a tricycle across the stage. And I think for adult shows, he would smoke cigarettes. You know, there probably was like 15 Mr. Jiggses. But I remember Mr. Jiggs as a kid, he came to Clark, New Jersey, and he performed on our stage and everybody laughed like a lunatic and poor Mr. Jiggs was, you know, was a slave, but we didn't really appreciate it. But that's the kind of what they do. They've taken monkeys out of the jungle and they've taught them to look at the corners, to look, you know, through the loop and grade these cards. And uh, PSA has tons of apes. They've really been the foremost uh, ape trainer um, to grade. I'm kidding, by the way, I'm, at some point I'm hoping that. I can stop with this joke because it's getting annoying to me as well. Anyway, um, there's all sorts of fraud in the hobby. Wherever there is money to be made, as I said, you can get educated. Uh, it's important. Being a criminal lawyer, as I said, I've seen every type of fraud that there is. So it helps me in spotting the fraud that perhaps the average imbecile in the hobby doesn't see. And big and tiny frauds, and this is a, these are classic names I'm about to mention. If you're a hobbyist, Bill Mastro of Mastro Auctions, he was the, the, the king of the uh, auction house, sports card auction house, you know, for decades, really. Um, there, he had a partner named Doug Allen. Mastro Auctions was out of Chicago, and it was the biggest auction house at the time. And I'm talking 20 years ago. Uh, they were the biggest, you know, for a year, even until 10 or 12 years ago. And they made huge amounts of money. But, of course, 
being hobbyists um, slash fraudsters, it was never enough. So they began bidding on items in their own auctions, running them up, as I said, is what it's called. They would see what people were putting as a ceiling bid. So if a card is at 50 bucks, you don't have to bid 51. You can bid 200 and just kind of keep like a safe gap there of money. So if somebody bids up, you're still the leading bidder. They would go in, they'd see what the ceiling bids were that people had put, and they would just run it right up to right below. So you'd end up paying your maximum amount of money. This is just how it was. This was sort of acceptable, even though it was illegal. And this began, I'm sure, even as soon as the auction houses started, but certainly it's been proven that it began in the early 2000s. And as I said, I'm sure they were doing it before then as well. And the way it worked, people, as I said, were innocently bidding and they had no idea that they were bidding against the house and everybody got ripped off. The Keith Oberman, Hal Steinbrenner, Keith Oberman's the sportscaster and I think he was on MSNBC. Um, he was on ESPN, obviously, as well. Hal Steinbrenner, jo- uh, George Steinbrenner's son and the owner of the Yankees got ripped off. I got ripped off. A list, when the government finally prosecuted Mastro, they had a list of a couple of years of the shill bidding that they were able to get the records. Of course, Mastro destroyed uh, many of the other records. And there was a list of everybody that was ripped off. You could see if you were ripped off and who ripped you off, sometimes the consigner, the person who consigned the lot, that you ended up buying, they consigned it at Mastro, was conspiring with Mastro to rip you off. They would be bidding on the items. It wasn't always Mastro that was bidding. It was the consigner in order to drive up the price. Because when you own baseball cards and you're a a fraudster in this hobby, it's like your entire life is tied up into this card, your, your income, your retirement, and you can't bear the thought of leaving a penny on the table. It's a competitive thing, but it's also just a pathetic low life a fraudster type of thing. You can't bear the thought of leaving a penny, a penny. I've got to steal every nickel. I can't leave one. I've got to nail it down. I can't let it happen. So of course you'll commit a crime that could put you in jail. It's worth it because I, I made seven extra dollars, but Mastro did other uh, bad things. They sold fake memorabilia. They sold fake Elvis Presley hair. They sold cards that they knew were altered. And Bill Mastro even trimmed the most famous baseball card ever, which is the highest graded Honus Wagner. It's called a T206 tobacco card, as I said, the one with the yellow background, the skinny, small one. And that was once owned by Wayne Gretzky, the, the uh, hockey great. The Mastro leadership team was eventually indicted federally about 10 years ago after a few years of an investigation. And there's a couple of funny things about that case that as a criminal lawyer, even I saw was different than what you're used to. One is Bill Mastro, who was the leader of the fraud. It was just a you know, bully, a thief, a loudmouth, just a really arrogant piece of shit. He cooperated with the feds in an effort to reduce his sentence and cooperated against his friends naturally. He stole from his friends, so cooperating against them uh, would not be much of a stretch. And that wasn't the part that's so shocking. But every time he came to court, he came with a priest. And that is like old school dishonest criminal defendant stuff. Like nowadays, people don't do that shit because judges know that you're just like trying to make it appear that you're going to wash the feet of lepers. You know, suddenly you get religion um, when you're about to go to jail and that's when people come to Jesus. And But Bill Masterman, he was such a fraudster, he couldn't be deterred. He knew that it looked stupid. He knew that he was a scumbag and he certainly wasn't a godly man, but he didn't care. Anything he could do to try to tilt the, the, the scale in his way, put his thumb on the scale, he would do. He wanted to make it appear like he was a changed man, like anyone could possibly have bought it. Of course, um, what's not mentioned that he's never, he never paid a penny in restitution back to his victims. So the godly man who brought the priest to every court appearance somehow missed the, uh, the one commandment of thou shalt not steal from your friends. Guys loaded, made tons of money stealing, never paid a penny of it back. The government, for whatever reason, the Chicago office of the U.S. Attorney's office didn't require him as part of his cooperation. I've never heard of something as idiotic as that, but frankly, the Chicago U.S. Attorney's office, I've dealt with them a lot. They've been pretty much a consistent disappointment. The agents that work uh, on those cases are the best I've ever seen, and they get rewarded by the fact that they have to work with the most lazy, useless uh, federal prosecutors that I'd ever seen. There are some exceptions, certainly, in that office. Uh, I'm dealing with one fellow now who's a solid dude. But for the most part, they just let Mastro get away with murder. And, you know, he should have been forced to give money back. He lived in a fancy house. 
he should have been forced to give some of the money back that he stole and not just stealing from, from anonymous people, from his friends. I mean, cause this is a, a very insular tight community. The second funny thing about those cases is that Doug Allen, that was Mastro's partner at the auction house. He also, of course, cooperated with the Freds. Feds. Why they let the two leading fraudsters in the case cooperate is unknown to me because they're cooperating down. They're cooperating against people that were smaller than them. And usually that's not allowed when you have a competent uh, U.S. attorney's office. You can only cooperate up. You don't want to start having the big guys cooperate against the little guys. It's unseemly. Apparently it's not unseemly in Chicago. Anyway, uh, Doug uh, Allen cooperated against uh, another well-known degenerate sports photo fraudster in the hobby. It was an Arkansas loudmouth named John Rogers, who I think is still in jail. And Doug did something in this case that even the most seasoned mobsters, the most seasoned killers, contract killers wouldn't do. They wouldn't be that insane while they're under indictment and while they're cooperating. He was cooperating. He tipped John Rogers off to an FBI search that was to happen that was planned for the next day at his house. So the guy's cooperating in an effort to reduce his jail time, and he still was such a scumbag that he double-crossed the FBI, the feds, and let John Rogers know so he could get rid of any of the evidence. What Doug Allen, and this is not a smart person, he's a smart criminal, but he was not a smart person. There's a difference. Somehow he didn't anticipate the fact that John Rogers was just as big of a scumbag as him, and he cooperated against Doug and tipped the FBI off that Doug had tipped him off about the planned raid the next day. Amazing. Of course, Doug had his cooperation agreement ripped up, and he ended up serving a bunch of years in jail. He should have served a lot more, but again, this is Chicago. It's really the wrong district to bring these cases if you really want criminals to pay. Um, and as I said, I th both of them are out of jail now, Doug Allen and Bill Mastro, and I have no doubt they'll be back in the hobby and never pay their victims back, even as they hang out with their victims at card shows. That's the hobby. Everyone, as I said, expects to get ripped off, and, and they don't mind it that much. And that's what addiction will do to you, for sure. Now, when I got into the hobby, I noticed that there was pretty massive shill bidding going on. I'm talking as an adult, as a lawyer. And I called it out publicly. I called it out publicly. Um, which didn't make me very ha uh, popular among hobbyists, mainly because they loved the status quo of the fraud being baked into the hobby because it enabled them to rip off anyone they could when they were selling um, by either, you know, consigning uh, items to master or other auction houses. And they would be allowed to shill bid against people that were bidding on their lots that they consigned. I could spot the shill bidding. It wasn't difficult. And it was amazing to me that nobody else saw it lots that uh, these auctions will last like four weeks. The cards will be online. It's all online. There are some in-person stuff as well. If you want, you can go, but you know, 99% of the bids are online or some on the phone. They would go for like four weeks. Then there'd be like a frantic ending, an extended bidding, like the last few hours until all the cards were sold. But for four weeks, sometimes these cards languish without a bid for days and days or weeks. Because as I said, all the action happened at the end when there was actually a clock that was running down. So what I would do is I would, I would be bidding on items and I would notice that in Mastro auctions, right after I placed the bid on a, on a card that hadn't received a bid in weeks, like 30 seconds later, I'd be outbid. So I started doing an experiment. I started bidding on completely different types of cards, you know, football card here, an old baseball card here, a more modern basketball card. And each time I bid, like 30 seconds later, I got outbid. And I'm thinking, there's no way. There's just no way. It's too much of a coincidence. Somebody at Mastro is watching my bids and is bidding up to, to surpass me, to induce me to think that I'm in a competition, to, in a competitive bidding war. So I'll keep bidding and, and raise the price. So I brought this out publicly on on a, a baseball, vintage baseball card chat board, and I got attacked. I thought that people would think I was a hero for spotting the obvious fraud. As I said, they were either consigners to Mastro and they didn't want their gravy train to end, or perhaps uh, they were bidding on their own lots and they wanted to shill bid themselves. They didn't want it brought out. They didn't want the fraud brought out in the public. I would get calls from Doug Allen. It was hilarious. I'd be sitting at my desk at home and I would never pick up the call for the guy. Never, 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 never begging me to, to stop dragging him publicly. And I swear I'm not committing any fraud. I never took one of his calls because I knew he was lying. 
It's not the first time I've been lied to by a criminal. You know, my position was, show me your bidding records and I'll do it. And of course, they never would because they were committing fraud. Eventually, the feds got involved. And um, from there, there was one very dogged uh, FBI agent who is, it's hilarious to think that the, this is a, a multi-billion dollar industry now. And there's just like so few federal agents working on it. And one uh, agent really did like 95% of all the uh, uh, law enforcement, this is for years in the hobby, one guy who just worked his ass off and again, um, as I mentioned, was stuck with prosecutors who were inversely hardworking as he was. So very hardworking guy, very uh, lazy prosecutors. And uh, Mastro and Alan, as I said, uh, and some other people, their partners got indicted and, and everybody went to prison just about. The two of these guys were so brazen and while this investigation was going on, before they were indicted, they had the balls to sue a client of mine, the owner of SGC, the sports uh, grading company, a card grading company, who they claim had bought $400,000 worth of cards in their auction and didn't pay. And they had sent him the cards before he paid. And that's sometimes what auction houses do with big bidders that they trust. But the uh, owner of SGC during this period realized that he had gotten badly ripped off by, uh, by Doug Allen and got the cards and said, you know what? You ripped me off. He had stolen some stuff from him and I'm not paying you until you give me back what you stole and you address the shill bidding. I'm not paying you. So they sued him and they sued him in this tiny little court. I think it was, um, it was in Illinois. What town was it in? Bumfuck. That's what it was. It was Bumfuck, Illinois. They sued him in a tiny uh, uh, court there. Dave hired me, Dave Foreman, that's the owner of the SGC, hired me uh, to defend him there. And it was stunning to me because how could these guys who were under investigation take a chance and, you know, with a, a possibility that they're going to have to undergo a deposition under oath and that they'd incriminate themselves on the issues of, uh, of fraud in their auction house in a deposition? How could they do that when they were under investigation criminally? I was shocked that they actually could find a lawyer that let them do this, but somehow they found, uh, these two idiots found idiot lawyers, let them do it. So of course I promptly countersued for their shill bidding, the very thing that they were, were about to get charged with criminally. And of course they couldn't dare fight it. They're so dumb. So they ended up letting Dave uh, keep the cards, um, without having to pay back. And they also returned another six-figure card they had stolen from him and they were going to auction off. It was with them to hold on to, to auction off, but then their relationship fell apart. And I also made them pay a few thousand dollars in damages on top. Just, just another kick in the nuts while they were down on the ground. And, you know, you don't have to listen to it from me now in 2022, but here's how it was described in a 2011 New York Daily News article. It's, I'm um, quoted, Quote, it is the most devastating and complete win that one can have in a civil case, Foreman's attorney Jeff Lickman said. Quote, like any other bully, when you punch back, they folded, and they folded in the most cowardly manner, Lickman said. Bill Mastro, the auction house's founder and former chairman, hung up when contacted for comment. So you can get an idea as to uh, who won that one and who lost that one. And there's nothing better than, than whipping a bully, whether it's a, a mafia killer cooperating with the government or some pompous baseball card auction house windbag. It's an equal type of joy. I enjoy uh, both. Now, I, I recognize that I'm boring you half to death because the reason why I brought all this stuff up was to talk about the Tom Brady final football pass auction debacle. The other night, I spoke at a, a baseball card symposium of sorts. Brigandi's is a, uh, a store in Manhattan run by wonderful fellows, uh, two generations of Brigandi's. Um, just wonderful, real collectors, not, you know, guys that are just consumed about money. And you can tell the difference. A real collector is a guy that just doesn't, the money is somewhat important because he needs to eat, but mainly the cards are everything to him and he just can't get enough. And he's got stars in his eyes, you know, talking about his cards. That's the kind of person you want to hang out with. If you can in the hobby, you want to meet with people like that. And as I said, I spoke at this symposium of sorts and I broke the news about the Brady football. There was a resolution to Darren Rovelli's of the Action Network. He's a well-known sports business reporter who spoke at the same symposium of sorts. And Leland's, the auction house that had sold the Brady final or then final uh, football, touchdown pass football, agreed to void the sale and the winning bidder, my client, would not 
have to pay for a ball that was worth now a fraction of what the winning bid was before Brady announced that he was unretiring. Now, I praised Leland's publicly. Um, and if you remember, Leland's is the auction house. I spoke about them a few weeks ago. That was the one whose owner, former owner, he's dead now, threatened to uh, uh, kill me and my children, shoot them. And, you know, this is, again, this is the hobby. I mean, threatening homicide one day, the next day you're buying baseball cards from. It's all pretty much the same type of behavior, psychotic addiction, insanity. It's all kind of mixed together. No hard feelings. You threaten to kill my kids. Unless you actually kill my kids, then that's where I draw the line. But until you actually fire that gun, even if you miss, I probably could still buy cards from you, but as long as you miss. So I praised Leland's publicly, not because I felt they did the right thing out of decency by voiding the sale, but because they'd get sued if they didn't, and it would be a bad look for them trying to recover money uh, after they're about to deliver a football that was no longer the football that they had sold before they even delivered it. And, and Leland's, to their credit, didn't give us any pushback at all on this. The collector that I represent, I actually met him. This is, again, typical of, of uh, the hobby. I met him when another client of mine was accused of ripping him off regarding another expensive item last year. So this guy was a victim in another case that I got involved in, and I, I was asked to get involved to fix the mess and to ensure that my client wasn't indicted for fraud. And I think I put both to bed, the, the collector that I'm representing now, um, got the card that he wanted and the one that I was representing didn't get indicted. And when I had spoken to him last year, when he wasn't my client, he was a victim. He just struck me as a really nice guy, you know, an older guy, a few years older than me. I hate to say that because a few years older than me shouldn't be older, but a really decent guy, it, not a kid who was just concerned about money. He's like a, a philanthropist of sorts. Like a, It's bizarre. He's so nice that it's unsettling a little bit when you're a criminal lawyer and you're used to dealing with people in this hobby. He's just a genuinely straightforward, decent man, if you can actually believe that they, they even exist. And the problem with the hobby where the fraud has gotten even worse is that the last few years, really since the pandemic, the, the prices, the values have gone up like straight up due to you know, cards and memorabilia being perceived as legitimate asset classes now really didn't happen quite as much. It wasn't taken as seriously before the pandemic, but I guess people staying at home, they can't leave the house. They are missing things about their youth, simpler times, instead of worrying about the China virus. Um, they go back and start looking at their baseball cards that they collected as kids and prices zoomed up. But the hobby's backbone is still individuals who loved collecting as kids and still do decades later. Money is not the object. The objects are the object. and even today, as I, as I mentioned the other night during uh, when I was speaking at that symposium, my cards are worth a lot of money, but I don't view them as assets, really. I view them as like treasures to me. Uh, any money that I spend on it, I, I just don't view it as something because it's hard for me to even think about selling them. It's, it's very emotionally troubling to even think about it. And Ron, the guy who I met who was the victim of fraud of one of my clients and then was the purchaser of the Brady football did not want to pay for the football because he just bid on it and won it the night before. The next day, it's worth 10% perhaps. So you can understand that he didn't want to pay for that football because the football came with a letter of authenticity that said that it was the final touchdown of Tom Brady's career. And the ball clearly was not anymore. He wasn't looking to Welsh on a purchase. He just was not going to be receiving what he bought. So legally, I have no doubt that Leland's would have lost that litigation. And that's why um, they gave in so easily because this is not, you know, Leland's is like every other auction house is looking to nail every dollar down. Now they could have sold the ball the correct way and, and gotten paid if they simply would have stated that the ball was being sold as his most recent last touchdown pass after he announced his retirement, but that there's a possibility he could come back. They could have put that qualifying language in there because there were rumors that he might come back. It wasn't like, it was a complete shock. They could have done that. They could have included that language. And if he had come back, then the buyer would have been stuck with it because it said, you may not be buying the last ball because he may stay retired or he may not. And it's a gamble at that point. But naturally they didn't because of money, because instead of it selling for 518, it might've sold for 350,000 and Leland's can't possibly bear the thought of leaving any money on the table. So they had to make it seem like it was the final touchdown 
pass, period, end of story. But Leland's, you know, as I said, didn't do that. Now, considering that this is the auction house, as I said, whose owner threatened to, to kill me and my kids, I suppose I shouldn't be really surprised about what happens next. So the news of this, uh, the resolution hit late Thursday of last week. You know, that's when I released it to Darren Rovell of the, uh, the Action Network. But I was really shocked the next day to read Leland's president's comment about it. And as I said, I, I, was, I praised them because I thought they did the right thing. This is what he said, the, the president. Quote, we wanted to do the right thing here, said Mike Hefner, president and partner at Leland's, adding that while the original buyer has pulled out, the Bulls consigner still plans to sell it privately through Leland's. Okay, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Wanted to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I believe it, but hey, listen. He did do the right thing, so it's all cool. Hefner claimed that it took a month to officially announce the voided sale because all parties involved were waiting to see if Brady would stay unretired. According to Leland's, after both buyer and consigner were reached, that delay was due to wanting to confirm Brady's retired stat, unretired status. Quote, all parties were waiting to see how it played out, Hefner said. Quote, Tom Brady, let's face it, is kind of unpredictable these days until he throws that first touchdown pass in September. This ball is still the record. Now, there are massive lies here. And I, and I guess this is how the hobby is. You can lie, and the liars in the hobby are so brazen, they can't possibly imagine that there are people out there that might speak the truth. Just shocking. First of all, no one was waiting, at least on our side. We weren't waiting to see if Brady retired again. We knew that he was, he was unretired. Who's, when has anybody ever accused uh, Tom Brady of being a schizophrenic who's going to retire in January, unretire in March, and then retire again within the next month? There was not even the beginnings of any discussion about the possibility of him retiring again. He said, I'm back and I'm playing with you guys next year. That was it. So we weren't waiting for anything. As soon as the auction ended and I got hired a couple days later, I contacted Leland's lawyers and said, let's talk. And he called me and I said, we're not paying for the football. Let me know how you want to handle it. Now, it took a few weeks for them to get back to us. I don't know what they were doing, but we contacted them. We contacted, they didn't contact us. We didn't discuss to see what was going to happen with Brady. We knew he was staying unretired. Jeez. The buyer never paid Leland's. So our position, I mean, we didn't pay because the next day, like on a Sunday, uh, Brady announced that he was uh, coming back. So there wasn't even time to send the money. Our position was like, look, we're not paying. We haven't paid yet. We're never paying for the ball. And that's it. So we weren't waiting for Brady, as I said, to announce anything. Why didn't that was the case that the president of Leland saying that they were waiting to see if Brady was going to stay unretired? Well, why didn't they wait until the end of the summer? I mean, Brady could retire again in June. Season doesn't start. I mean, practice doesn't start until like August. No, the fact is no one was waiting for to see if Brady was going to come back, uh, if he was going to retire again. I think what really happened was they were checking out their legal avenues and ultimately determined that wasn't going to work by suing my client. And as I said, the other lie was the fact that they reached out to us. It never happened. They didn't reach out to us. We had to reach out to them. Um, as I said, I sent an email to Leland's lawyers and we spoke. I told them that we weren't paying for the ball. They never reached out to us, period. It's just a flat out lie. I don't really understand why they had to lie. They could have just said, we determined that it wasn't the right thing to do. End of story. But this is how the hobby is. It's like people will lie sometimes just for practice. They just want to see if they can get, I don't know, why else would you lie about this stuff? Just say, look, we recognize that we can't deliver the ball that we sold and, you know, we're doing the right thing. Instead, you got to add some lies and they think, well, I'm just going to not say anything. I guess they assumed I wouldn't say anything. Well, I'm saying something now. Now, my client is a really decent man, as I said, really generous and honest. I actually think, and this is just uh, a speculation, that Leland's didn't reach out to him after Brady announced he was coming back because they felt that my client uh, is obviously a man of means and is such a decent guy that they thought there was a chance he might still pay, that he would feel obligated and might pay. I think that's the reason why they didn't contact us. They were just hoping maybe they'd get lucky and there'd be a wire for $518,000 in their account. But again, my client's not dumb and he wasn't paying for a ball that was not as advertised when he purchased it before receiving it. So anyway, but that's how Leland's is. They're not really different than many of the other auction houses. Uh, you know, they're 
There's a lot of fraud that goes on in these houses and certainly a lot of lies. It is what it is. Now, I've heard that they read also that they claim that there are multiple prospective buyers that are still reaching out to try to buy the ball. I take that with a grain of salt. I don't believe it for a second. Do I think people might want to buy it? I I suppose um, they may want to buy it because it's still the ball has some infamy and it's still a Tom Brady touchdown uh, football. I mean, there's only, I think, 624 of them in existence. I'd like one. I'd like to have one of Hank Aaron's home run balls as well, or I guess Barry Bonds is now the the record holder, but he's uh, was so pumped up with steroids. I think most people uh, still view Hank Aaron as the uh, the rightful leader in home runs. So maybe the ball is worth twenty to thirty thousand. I've heard rumors that Leland's is trying to sell it for three hundred and fifty thousand. I don't believe it. Nobody is that stupid to spend three hundred and fifty thousand dollars on uh, that football. But the bottom line is, and I've been droning on too long on this uh, Beyond the Legal Limit special holiday edition podcast. If you're in this hobby, buy what you love. If you buy what you love, when you find out that you got ripped off, it doesn't hurt quite as much. It hurts a little. It's not pleasant to get ripped off to be the victim of a crime, but at least, uh, you know, it makes it a little better because you still got a really cool card that you love. Anyway, that's that. Now, I'm going to leave you so you can get back to your glazed ham, or if you're in Gaza or the West Bank, you'd be throwing uh, rocks uh, at Jews. Whatever it is, um, and if you're a Jew, you'll be eating matzah. You won't be eating uh, any bread, so stick to that. You won't be going to the bathroom for a while because I find that matzah tends to bind you a little bit. But next week, we'll be back, um, I believe, uh, unless I oversleep, with a more traditional episode of the podcast. And I want to talk about um, Rashawn Weaver. He was the 14-year-old that uh, was convicted of killing the Barnard freshman. He was 14 years old. There's something in the news. I had felt that the reason the way he was treated was due to racism. I feel like I've been proven right by that. And we'll talk about that next week. Thank you for tuning in. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, you name it, wherever podcasts are, um, we exist. And you can email me at beyondthelegallimit.com if you have any questions. My stalkers uh, email me there as well. I appreciate those. Those are funny. But until then, see you next week.